Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello again from the Bible Geek, uh, namely Robert M. Price, and uh, I sometimes answer to that name, or that alias, you'll have to guess which. I'd like to get into some of our uh, great questions, but first, a statement of policy, and uh, then a couple of shameless plugs. Uh, What is the approach of the Bible Geek? Well, most of you know by now, but just in case you're tuning in for the first time, I want to make it clear that... uh, The goal of the show is to uh, understand the Bible, especially puzzling aspects of it. The standpoint is, uh, I hope, not uh, negative, uh, but um, neither is it cheerleading for theology, right? Uh, Often Bible shows are like that. Uh, How can I fix this leak in the Bible? Uh, How can I correct this this error and show that it's not an error and and so on? How would this fit with the true theology, which happens to be my theology? No, no, none of that stuff. We're interested in the Bible as a human document. And as I like to point out on the human Bible, the sister show to this one, uh, it's at least a human document, right? Um, it's not divinely dictated in tongues or something. Uh, there's no point in uh, allegorizing the Bible because then you're just reading into it uh, something you like better than what it actually says, uh, to be blunt about it. Uh, so it's an, an honest attempt to bring to bear scholarly insights. I don't care who they're from. What side, what team, that's of no interest to me. Uh, I love religion and religious people, but I must admit I am no longer an adherent of any religion. And uh, that is uh, having worked my way out of it, not on purpose, but that's just kind of the way it fell. And the interest I maintain in it uh, is rather like that of a classicist studying, uh, let's say, uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. I love the text. I love these stories and sayings, even when I don't agree with them. So uh, I uh, am uh, trying to promote a greater appreciation of the Bible through a better understanding of it. And to do that, uh, you you do have to... um, I guess, like it, uh, but not uh, idolize it. Uh, if you make something into an idol, that's another way of saying that you're uh, not allowing any criticism of it. And since most things uh, have uh, room for criticism, and, and by that I don't necessarily mean value judgments, but you have to make certain decisions about it. I remember reading more than once in the old days people saying, uh, we're not to engage in criticism of the Bible, but to let God's word criticize us. 
uh, I don't think that's really an either-or situation. There's plenty to uh, learn from the Bible and to take heed from it. There's a lot of wisdom there, but it's not all wisdom, or at least uh, not for us. There's a lot of things that were relevant once that are not anymore, and you might as well admit it. But I like to say, I guess this is my big slogan, there's nothing more pious than understanding the text. Uh, if you can't do that, you're, you're not even at square one. All right, so I want to approach it from that standpoint, and I guess by now most of you do too. Um, I virtually never have anybody try to confute or contradict what I'm saying unless it's a, an actual correction of an error on my part in which I, I welcome them. Uh, I don't have to be right all the time, though I want to be because I don't want to misinform anybody, right? But uh, I, I don't feel defensive. If you can shed some light on the Bible that I have not seen, that's great. I'll be happy to steal it from you. Okay, well, having said that, let me just uh, mention a couple of things. Um, uh, one is that uh, the brand new issue of the Journal of Higher Criticism is out, and there's an article about C.C. Torrey and other scholars who have posited an original Aramaic uh, authorship of, of the Gospels. Uh, and uh, that's kind of a neglected view, and... Um, I think there are interesting possibilities, interesting implications. So I have an article in there about that. Stefan Huller has an extremely fascinating one about how uh, the uh, secret gospel of Mark might have been the original gospel of Mark and that what we're reading is an edited version and that the original was Gnostic and uh, that it was perhaps identical with uh, so the so-called gospel according to the Egyptians. That's not the text that's in the Nag Hammadi library. Uh, it's uh, it's a different uh, book that was actually called that in the, in the ancient times. We don't have anything but quotes from it, but the ones we have are pretty fascinating. And uh, the Gospel of the Egyptians, Huller shows, may well have been the same thing as the Gospel of Basilides. Uh, and that's interesting because Basilides claimed to have been taught by Glaucus a disciple and secretary of Peter. Well, that kind of dovetails, oddly enough, with what uh, Papias says about how the Gospel of Mark was based on the teaching of Peter, but it's uh, pretty wild stuff. And, um, uh, and, and if this is the case, that would be... <laughs> That would mean that Basilides, the Gnostic, was the author of the Gospel of Mark. How fascinating. you got to read it. And there's this other great stuff by Samuel Zinner. And um, uh, there's our pal, uh, I want to pronounce this right, um, Virachana Asura, a Hindu convert and a great, scripture scholar and just oh great stuff great stuff uh okay the second thing is uh it looks as if i will after a long period of uh should i or shouldn't i uh i've uh, decided to work on a book uh you, you're familiar with the apologetics text by uh, the late Norman Geisler and uh, Frank Turek. I think I've got that name right. Uh, it's called um, I Don't Have Enough 
faith to be an atheist? Well, I would do a rejoinder to that argument by argument. It's neatly organized into different claims for different chapters. And mine would be called, I don't have enough guile to be an apologist. Um, so it, it looks like I have a publisher interested in that, and uh, we'll... Uh, uh, we'll uh, see. I haven't started it yet, so that'll still be off in the future. But in the meantime, you can uh, look forward with bated breath. I assume that means breathlessly, holding your breath or something. I don't know. Um, when Gospels Collide, Judaizing Jesus and Merely Christianity... Uh, plus, I have a sadly neglected collection of essays from Tamayo's books uh, called uh, Reinterpreting the New Testament. You're really missing out. And uh, that, that one isn't selling too well, I think, because there's like no in the nature of the case. You know, uh, it's, it's not like it's uh, widely uh, advertised or anything, but you might want to check that out. Okay, with that, let's get into some questions, and uh, good ones they are. Okay, uh, the first is, um, I think this has come up before, and I didn't quite get the point of it or, or know how to answer it. I think I can now. Uh, let's see, uh, greetings, Dr. Pr this is from Nick Shockley. He says, uh, your Billy Graham voice would be much appreciated if you re read this on your podcast. Uh, my question is about Hermann Dettering's position on the Mark and Apocalypse as a document from the Bar Kokhba revolt. Uh, what was it, around 136 or so? Uh, uh, let's throw a little billion here. I'm largely convinced by his argument, and as I understand it, he posits that Mark edited an earlier version of the little apocalypse that can still be found in its original form in Matthew. Uh, see, Mark's revisions to the little apocalypse appear to align with the circumstances of the Bar Kokhba revolt of the 130s CE and would place Mark firmly in the second century. I've also heard it argued from you and others that Mark's gospel has evidence of being written in Rome. If that's the case, can we surmise that Marcion is a possible candidate for the author of Mark? He was in Rome during the 130s, and I understand his name translates to Little Mark. Why would a Roman author, whoever he was, choose to edit the Little Apocalypse from the ostensible time of Jesus to appeal to the current circumstances of the Bar Kokhba revolt? Well, Nick, um, uh, let's see here. Uh, I think Dettering argued that the Matthean original is the one that uh, fits the, uh, not that Matthew wrote it, but he inherited the thing that was still circulating, though Mark had used it, it was still circulating uh, uh, by itself, and that um, it uh, and that uh, Matthew's uh, is is closer to the original, and it contains the hints of a or the matches with circumstances during the Bar Kokhba revolt, and um, that Mark seems to have edited that stuff out. Now, there's a couple of possibilities. It depends on who you think did the editing, because traditionally. Um, We've assumed, and I, I still think that uh, Matthew 
redacted mark uh, and added quite a bit to it. Uh, if you're correct, and the theory is that uh, Matthews, I'm sorry, that Marks is more like it, it fits the, the conditions of uh, Bar Kokhba, uh, that um, would indeed place Mark in the uh, in the time of, of Bar Kokhba. But uh, let's see. Not only that, it, Mark would be probably in the second century even if his is the more edited version and Matthew's was the one that uh, uh, fit the uh, 130s, Zitzim Laban, um, because uh, it would imply that, um, uh, that, that this was later also. But the, let, let's just go with your, your reconstruction here. Who would have, why would Mark if he was in Rome, have uh, refitted the little apocalypse to conditions prevalent in the 130s? Well, that's not too hard to answer because that would mean he he uh, decided to adjust it to the, the gathering clouds in his day that he could see it coming and decided to uh, that it hadn't happened in 70 uh, and that uh, maybe it was now because something similar was going on, but the circumstances would imply it was his own day. So that isn't that tough to figure out. Now, if you say that uh, uh, Mark had uh, redacted it to make it fit 70, that would, and, and he was a Roman Christian, you could understand that in terms of the Roman provenance hypothesis that uh, some Christians, including Mark, understood the prediction of the destruction of the temple and uh, the, the parousia as partly, at least, symbolic, like preterists teach, uh, and that he, he thought that the coming of the Son of Man, uh, and uh, adjacent to the, or simultaneously with the destruction of the temple, was talking about Titus and Vespasian, uh, and that he figured, you know, what does he say? Uh, let the reader understand that this is not all just uh, surface and its meaning. So uh, th those would be my uh, two guesses about it. Now, as to whether Marcion could have been Mark, there are people that think that. I have to admit, I am not sufficiently conversant at this time with all the theories about this, but some have thought that. And that, uh, and that, uh, well, I think uh, Richard J. Arthur thought that. He, he did think, I know, that uh, Mark had used both Matthew and Luke, uh, choosing what he wanted from each. And that would kind of fit a later date, the uh, con, uh, contemporaneous with Marcion. But, and, and Mark, more than any other gospel, has this incessantly negative depiction of the disciples, which sounds pretty darn Marcionite. So there is something to that. I, I haven't yet uh, made a decision on it. Uh, I'll have to do more thinking about that, but you could well be right, and you wouldn't be the only one who thinks so. 
Thanks, Nick. You got a sharp eye. Okay. Uh, let's see. This is from our pal Brent in Tennessee. He says, I've keenly been interested in, quote, Paul, unquote, ever since your debate with Bart Ehrman. Uh, you have really, you, you remember this when uh, I said that I didn't think Galatians was written by Paul. Um, uh, uh, Bart burst out laughing. He, he uh thought it was just an absurdity, uh, apparently unaware that uh, Rudolf Steck, who was uh, Karl Barth's teacher, believed this, and there were various other scholars, not a whole lot of them, obviously, uh, that uh, since uh, the 19th century had thought this. Uh, so, you know, it's not as unheard of um, as it seemed to be to him. Uh, let's see here. Okay. Uh, you really opened my eyes to just how little we know about Paul and his epistles. You've convinced me that all or most of the letters attributed to him are forgeries, redactions, or interpolations to a degree that makes it next to impossible to know anything about Paul. Your speculation that Paul was probably Simon Magus seems on the right track. Uh, I was uh, let's see here. Yeah, I was very interested in the first few minutes of your October twenty eighth Bible Geek podcast concerning the office politics of the Qumran sect and the possibility that Paul slash Simon Magus might have been the spouter of lies. You know. Character mentioned in cipher language in the Dead Sea Scrolls. When I looked at the Wikipedia entry on Simon Magus, some of the events in his life lined up with what you were saying. It is an interesting possibility. We simply must be able to account for why early Christians deemed Paul's letters important enough to be included in the New Testament, and I don't know if much research has been done on that angle. Your description of events surrounding uh, the... Uh, wait a minute. Uh, am, I, am I repeating skipping backwards on the scroll here. My uh, scrolling thing is kind of chaotic sometimes. Yeah, you, okay, well, in any event, your description of events surrounding the office politics of the Qumran sect seems possible. Maybe Paul was the spouter of lies and his sect grew so big that the Qumran sect eventually had to accommodate him and his followers. Yeah, that, that is kind of what I'm saying. I developed that more in... Uh, toward the end of um, my book, uh, Judaizing Jesus. Uh, which brings me to my question, do you have any speculation on who the teacher of righteousness might be? Uh, well, I have to go along with uh, Robert Eisenman on this, uh, that it, the best candidate would seem to be James the Just, the so-called brother of the Lord. Uh, um, Barbara Thiering argues that it was John the Baptist, and that would make sense too. Uh, so, and and uh, somebody else can't think of his name at the moment has suggested that maybe it was a title of an office. And there were various teachers of righteousness, and that John the Baptist was succeeded by James the Just. 
I, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, there's no way to know, but it seems to me Eisenman's arguments, if you got to pick one, uh, are probably the most persuasive because this guy must have been a whoever he was must have been some major character in in sectarian Judaism slash Christianity, uh, and and it's like you. Uh, I mean, his name could have just been lost. Uh, the reason it doesn't occur is that they made this heavy use of cipher language for whatever reason. Uh, but uh, it 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 would be surprising if it was if it turned out to be somebody we never heard of. Uh, and so it makes you start thinking, well, could it be somebody we have heard of who was uh, assigned this title? And then you're talking about uh, good candidates, including uh, John the Baptist and James the Just. Yeah, okay. So uh, those, I don't have other speculations, but I find uh, uh, these pretty compelling. I mean, they're, they're no proof, obviously. You can't really prove uh, this stuff unless somebody is digging in his garden and finds a hitherto unknown um, clay jar or something with a bunch more uh, scrolls in it. Uh, be sure and let me know, by the way, if that happens to you. And okay, okay. Uh, Who have we got here? Uh, this is from Romar the Druid. Uh, greetings and salutations, Geek Effects Maximus. After learning of your appearances on the Eon Byte podcast, I went back and downloaded them for at least the last year or so to listen to. I have to say, listening to the episode with John Loftus and Robert Connor was painful. Uh, thank you for being the voice of reason. Now, I wasn't on that, was I? I know I was on one with Connor. Um, and found it rather difficult to keep my patience about me. He was promoting the old rationalist theory that Paul was insane and uh, on pretty skimpy evidence, uh, I think. But anyway, uh, what prompted my thoughts was the episode where you and Carol are discussing Lovecraft and Acharya S., during his opening monologue, Miguel is talking about some of the things he's learned over the 14 years of doing the podcast, and it made me think of the famous C.S. Lewis quote from Mere Christianity. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Boy, is that Gnosticism. Uh, uh, as a practicing pagan druid, not Drew, D-R-E-W-I-D, uh, though I am one of those as well, M-Div in 20, uh, 2009, I've, also, I've often thought Lewis missed the point. After the agricultural revolution, humans began to urbanize and lose touch with the natural rhythms of the planet that we're part of. This has only accelerated since the Industrial Revolution and gets worse with every passing year. The world that we were made for is the natural world, and we feel out of place in this world because we separate ourselves from the ecosystem that we're part of. This got me thinking that the story of the fall in Genesis 3, particularly 17b through 19b, 
curse it is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Um, let's see here. Uh, is... Oh, let me go back and pick up the beginning of this sentence. Uh, yeah, this is a... Got me thinking the story of the fall is an allegory for the agricultural revolution. We evolved to be hunter-gatherers living in small bands that rely on each other, and urbanization has destroyed that. I feel like there are other examples of this wisdom in the Old Testament, like the Tower of Babel. Could the story of Genesis go back 10,000 years to the agricultural revolution? Uh, perhaps a uh, pre prescient warning to the people of the time of the dangers of urbanizing? Um, I, uh, I doubt that, actually. Uh, I mean, you could have like a very old cultural memory uh, passed down part of the uh, the self-understanding of of some group of Hebrews that's possible but I don't know if you really need that because there's something a little closer to hand and that would be the uh, the um, at least what scholars think uh, was a uh, tension between the Israelites who had been, itinerant shepherds, Bedouins, uh, herding camels, sheep, etc., and wandering around from oasis to oasis. Uh, but, okay, tension between them on the one hand and the Canaanites who were settled farmers. Uh, the one aspect of the Cain and Abel story looks like it's, it's about that. You ever wondered why God uh, welcomed and accepted the uh, offering of Abel, who was a, a shepherd and so offered uh, lamb to God. Uh, and uh, and Cain, he just sent it back to the kitchen. He said, nope, uh, not having uh, salad, because Cain was a farmer. I mean, it, it doesn't say anything about any insincerity on uh, Cain's part, as if we were reading uh, rebukes of worshipers in uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, it doesn't say that he had some ulterior motive, uh, etc. And uh, it just says, uh, hey, uh, Cain, watch out, you know, the... the uh, the lurker, some sort of demon on the threshold, uh, is lying in wait for you, and he could kick your butt, but you have to master him. I'm not sure what that means, even, but as a rebuke. But the thing is, it makes a lot of sense if this is simply saying, hey, you want to know what kind of worship Jehovah favors? Well, it's not that. The greens, it's not your lawn clippings he's interested in. No, he's a meat eater. And uh, so naturally he favors the shepherds, the, the livestock uh, raisers. And um, that makes a lot of sense to me. And though it, it seems to presuppose stories of... Uh, an Israelite uh, series of, of 
liberation struggles against Canaanite kings like we find in the book of Judges. And these seem kind of dubious, but their traditions are something, and and, uh, this seems to be part of the same tradition, uh, at least. So I don't know that it has to go back to the uh, the time that hunter-gatherer lifestyle was being replaced by uh, um, agriculture. You still had both surviving, at least farming versus livestock, um, and uh, could just go to that. And uh, the Tower of Babel is trying to explain something else. I mean, it's not exactly like God doesn't want them to build this tower where they can all live together in a super high rise. Uh, But why? Uh, Well, he didn't think they were capable of an engineering feat like this, and it threatens him. Now, why? It does not say it's because he he thought that the the annoying humans would scale the tower and invade heaven. Now, it could be. There is a Greek myth you're probably familiar with where the giants um, heap mountains on top of one another because they do intend to breach heaven. And Zeus... Uh, stops that and and uh, imprisons the giants uh, in Hades under the earth. But so it, it might mean that there's an awful lot of parallels between Genesis and the the, the Greek myths, but it, it the missing piece is is the uh, the idea of uh, them gaining heaven or trying to. Now that would be if if you went ahead and connected uh, the dots that are there to one that is not, you would have an an exact case of what Samuel Sandmel called um, parallelomania. Uh, apologists like to misquote Sandmel as if he were saying this idea of comparative religion parallels and means nothing. Uh, so what if there are other dying and rising gods and myths? So uh, who cares? You don't, you don't need to worry about that. Uh, go back to sleep. That's not what Sam Sandmel said. He said, if you've got a couple of documents, uh, one a bit more uh, fulsome than the other, uh, and that the, that you've got a, a whole text with a whole story, and then you've got one that is fragmentary. Either there are holes in the text, or uh, the story just breaks off in the middle of nowhere, or whatever. You don't have the right to say, "Well, I, I bet there was a version of it where the parallel was carried out to the end." Uh, but no, no, if we don't have the evidence, we can't pretend we do. As Jacob Neusner later said, what we cannot show, we do not know, right? To, to uh, make that mistake is parallelomania. And so the, the Tower of Babel might be a parallel with the same motive as uh, the giants and the, the mountains trying to get into uh, Olympus, but we don't really know. Whereas if you look at the flood stories, yeah, the, you got the whole thing lock, stock, and barrel in all those cases. Um, let's see. Uh, and so is... So was that the, the, the challenge that Jehovah feared uh, that prompted him to uh, confuse the languages of all the people working there 
Uh, hey, I asked for a wrench and you're giving me a banana? What the heck? Uh, don't you understand the king's uh, Acadian? Uh, well, uh, it was, uh, it's just like the Harlan Ellison story, Shatterday, where uh, this, I think that's the one, uh, where uh, this, this guy suddenly finds that uh, pretty rapidly, every day, people are using familiar words to mean completely different things, and they see nothing wrong with it. And uh, so the, the protagonist is, is trying to put this together, and he finally cannot explain it, but just starts learning the new version. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like that. Uh, he wants to divide and conquer, uh, he, he, they're, they're too clever. Remember, he didn't want them eating from the tree of knowledge in the garden, uh, because, uh, and the tree of life. It could be one or the other, but not both, because that would make, uh, the humans into gods, eating the divine ambrosia and knowing what the gods know. Hey, we don't want that. There's enough of us already, right? So here again, even though they're not immortal, they're too smart for who's good? Their own? No, for Jehovah's. He doesn't want the, the competition. So uh, that, that, I think, is the uh, point of the uh, the Tower of Babel story, not really urbanization, because it doesn't even lead to that in the story, right? They're all scattered. Uh, and, uh, I mean, it could be anti-urbanization, but you, you don't get the impression that's God's, uh, I mean, no motive like that is assigned to him. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I can kind of see it while well, they're working together to build something, but, uh, don't know. Uh, it's it's not clear to me that that's that's going on, though it might be. So, uh, thanks, O Druidical One. Uh, this is from uh, Jason Quackenbush from East Texas. Now I don't know if George Bush is from East Texas or whatever, but I'll try. You know, I oh well, wait a minute. Yeah, this one is is new. There's one in a moment. I'm gonna dude that has a suspicious sense of familiarity. I might have done it already, but this one I don't think I have. Uh, dear Herr Dr. Price, I, I was reading through the Jewish Apocrypha doing research on the concept of legal property as it was understood by post-Maccabees Judaic law. Uh, let's see, uh, I practice poverty law for a legal aid office here in Washington State and some might be surprised how often biblical hermeneutics can come up in my line. Anywho, as I was reading, I noticed a couple of things in Jubilees I hope you'd grace us with your take on. Starting at Jubilees 5.12 of the R.H. Charles translation, right after the antediluvian apocalypse of the sword, when the Nephilim warlords are killed off, mostly, by human armies and the whole of creation died in combat, Yahweh goes back to the drawing board and, quote, uh, made for all his works a new and righteous nature, and then writes how well he thought they did on the heavenly tablets of righteousness. Then there's this curious passage that reads, 
And there is nothing in heaven or on earth or in light or in darkness or in Sheol or in the depth or in the place of darkness which is not judged and all their judgments are ordained and written and engraved. Now, which is not judged appears to be in brackets, I guess uh, it's implied in the... uh original text and Charles made it explicit. Uh, Okay, Uh, heaven and earth, light and dark, Sheol or the depth, I have an idea what they are, but I'd love to hear your thoughts about what the early Christians made of it. But then what's this place of darkness which is not judged? Is, Is that like purgatory? Why ain't it judged? It's part of creation too, ain't it? Uh, Well, uh, Neil, I think uh, you're making a problem where there isn't one. I think the uh, what it means is there's nothing in any place you want to look, including the place of darkness, that is not going to be held accountable. Everything will come before the judgment seat of God. I think that's what it means. Uh, That will not be judged refers to everything, right? There's nothing in any of these places that is not going to be judged. So I, I imagine that's really what's going on there. Not a place that is immune to judgment. Uh, okay, uh, Neil, I'm looking forward to your visit uh, in, uh, what is it, May or June? I got it written down. I won't miss it. Uh, look forward to seeing you again. You know, I always welcome visits from Bible geeks who happen to be in the area. And, uh, and Neil is again. That's going to be good. Let's see here. Um, this is from our pal Lachlan. Um, let's see. Again, feel free to throw uh, in your Billy Graham impression where appropriate. It's one of my favorites. You know, it's not even that good, I have to admit, but it's fun to do. Uh, I've heard over several podcasts the idea of Jesus as a stoic sage among the several competing historical Jesi. Epictetus, having lived between 50 and 135 AD, would probably be unfamiliar with the Gospels, although those writing Gospels may have been familiar with him, indeed. Uh, What do you think about this Epictetus quote? Uh, No great thing is created suddenly any more than a bunch of grapes or a fig. If you tell me you desire a fig, I will answer there must be time to blossom, then bear fruit, then ripen. Uh, On its surface, it seems to be a hard work pays off maxim with specific examples of energy-dense Roman fruits. But to anyone, uh, oh, doing the wrong accent suddenly. But to anyone in a Christian, or especially a Satano-Christian context, it seems to be the devil's rejoinder to Christ's desire for instant figs. You know, and the hey guys, I'm feeling like a fig, Newton. Uh, hey, there's a fig tree. Let's go get it, uh, uh, Master. It's not, uh, no quiet. I want that fig. And he goes over. What the hell? There's no figs on this thing. Well, we tried to tell you this isn't the season for figs. Um, and well, I'm cursing it anyway. Zap. 
Um, and what do you know? It dries up. Uh, there's a lot of speculation uh, on on what this meant. Uh, there's like a knobby little pre-fruit thing that comes out before it's actually time to harvest figs. And maybe at a distance, Jesus was wrong and thought they were figs. Uh, that's not all that popular for obvious reasons. Uh, it may be that, and it kind of sounds like it wasn't the season for figs, is a clumsy attempt by Mark or some redactor to get Jesus off the hook uh, that, uh, well, there's a good reason there weren't any figs. Wouldn't he have known it, though? I mean, you're just making it worse, right? And uh, so it, it's possible it's that, but... Uh, it seems to me it's a little more natural and less problematic to say that it's actually a parallel to the so-called parable of the seed growing secretly. Uh, I think I can paraphrase that okay, but let's go to the videotape uh, in Mark 4. A parable that Matthew and Luke, oddly, did not pick up. Maybe they didn't know what the heck it meant. Um, uh, let's see here. Oh, come on, come on, Vanya. See. And he said, the kingdom of God is... it is as if a man should scatter seed upon the ground and should sleep and rise night and day and the seed should sprout and grow, he knows not how. The earth produces of itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come." Now, what the heck is that about? Well, it does inculcate patience. And the uh, sickle, the harvest, uh, seems to mean that this is about uh, patience waiting for the parousia. And, of course, the presupposition is that it was supposed to have happened already, but hasn't. But don't give up. It will. Uh, it's just like the, the, the turning of the seasons, just like agriculture. It's not going to spring up overnight, no matter what the, uh, the fertilizer commercials tell you. Uh, you, you it's, there are things going on as it gestates in the ground that you cannot facilitate. You, you can't speed it up. You, you got nothing to do with it, right? It's going to happen in and of itself when it happens, and then it'll be time for the harvest of the, the end-time resurrection and so on. So that's what I think, but it, it's also uh, possible just to take it as uh, like Epictetus does here, that uh, some things are going to take time. Uh, if they're worthwhile, you better get used to the idea of waiting. Um, I think 
this is uh, epic. Yeah, this is Epictetus also in his handbook or Enchiridion uh, or manual, if you prefer that translation. A really good book. You ought to read it. All kinds of wise stuff in it. He says, do you ever envy somebody who's wealthy and uh, and popular and say, boy, would I love a life like that? Well, would you? Uh, maybe you would, but ask yourself, what do you suppose that person had to do to reach that state? Uh, whose palm did he have to grease? What compromises did he have to make? Uh, what kind of back-breaking overtime did he have to do? Do you want that? Because that's part of the package. You're not just going to get the result by doing nothing. Uh, and so uh, I, I think that does, is very likely uh, what this, this passage means too, though it's nowhere near as explicit as it is in, uh, in good old uh, Epictetus. Not to be confused with Epicurus, also a wise philosopher. Um, uh, I like both of them personally. Okay. Let's see, where are we here? Greetings, great wise geek. Um, now, this is pretty long. I think it's going to be the, uh, the last thing on the show, but it's well worth it. Oh, yeah, who is this from? Let me tell you. It's... Okay, pretty long indeed. This is the one where it looks kind of familiar to me, but what the heck, let's take a look anyway. This is Toland, otherwise known as uh, 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 Neil McGethigan. You'll see why he's using the pseudonym Toland in a second, as if you can't guess already. Okay. Uh, it seems that uh, many questioners begin with an autobiography of their journey through belief or unbelief. So let me testify. I once was a sincere, true believer. God was a real and dominant, omnipresent presence to me. Uh, growing up as a child, this was instilled in me by my pious grandparents, along with the importance of the Catholic faith. I was too young to know what Catholic meant. Most adult Catholics don't know either. Uh, nearly every authority figure in my life at that time made passing references to God's existence, which made it very awkward when I discovered that some people didn't believe in him. It's strange to call this faith because to me at this time, the term was used interchangeably as fact. Uh, to me, it was real as the weather. It was above us, invisible like the wind, hard to predict, but clearly there. Not saying prayers was as foolish and consequential as not paying your taxes. If God's existence was such an important fact, why was it even debatable? Let me just pause there. A uh, little and sell me an echo here. Um, uh, St. Anselm, in the famous ontological argument, uh, argued that um, if we take the common, well, he, he would say universal definition of God as that than which 
nothing greater can be conceived as existing, well, then uh, God's got to exist. What? Why? Is that a bit of a jump? And no, not really, because uh, you can conceive uh, of various things that are pretty mind blowing and uh, astounding, eh, but they're not real. You know, uh, like a golden island. He, he is an example he gave, or Pegasus. Uh, he may have mentioned. Maybe it was somebody else. Uh, these are pretty great things, but they're imaginary. Well, isn't it the same way with God? Uh, boy, I tell you, if you had an omnipotent, omnipresent, uh, all-powerful entity, man, that, that is so great. But uh, whether there's one or not, uh, we don't know. We can't know. Oh, yes, you can. Uh, you're telling me, like, uh, you're telling me that God is that than which nothing greater can be imagined as existing, um, and yet God might not exist. What about, the, let's say, this, uh, this comb you're, you're using right now, this plastic comb? Pick anything you want. Uh, it uh, is nothing much to write home about, right? It's just a crummy comb. Probably the teeth break on a regular basis. It's caked with disgusting dandruff and so on. It's nothing big, right? Uh, and yet it has something that God might not have in that it exists, right? Now, you're telling me that if God doesn't exist... Uh, that uh, that he that yeah he's the greatest imaginable nothing can be imagined greater eh, but uh, this lousy comb is greater than God because it does exist it's got that attribute but God is you know just purely theoretical he's just on paper he's like Superman you know doesn't exist. I mean, you know what Superman is. You read the comics, seen the TV shows, and so on. But there's no Superman, unfortunately. You can tell me the attributes of Superman, right? He's invulnerable. He has superhuman strength. He can fly. He has X-ray vision, and so on. Yeah, we, he's got super speed. Yeah, if Superman existed, that that would be he. But of course, he doesn't. Well, so this crummy home is greater than Superman because despite all that it lacks, it at least has the basic attribute of existing, right? So your ballpoint pen is greater than God, uh, and uh, it can't be. He says, look, there's something about this. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived as existing. Well, Whatever you nominated as a rival must be inferior to God. And since all these crummy little things around us do at least exist, for the notion of God to require existence must mean that God exists. It's part of the definition. If you know what it means, you, you have affirmed its existence. That, that wouldn't work with anything else. Just God, because God is that, than which nothing greater can be conceived as existing, which means he must exist. Another way of saying this might be that uh, God necessarily exists. I mean, you, you could say, well, 
maybe God uh, just came into being by some cosmic accident. Well, that would mean his existence was was uh, contingent, uh, but that wouldn't make him the greater than anything that uh, could exist, right? Uh, he must exist necessarily. Now, I find this a mind-wringing uh, Zen paradox. I don't know if it's valid or not. I tend to think it isn't. Kant didn't buy it. He said, no, you're, there's a basic confusion here. You're treating existence as a quality or an attribute, but it's more fundamental than that. Uh, you're saying, oh, uh, a god that uh, might not exist lacks the attribute of existence. It's, it's not an attribute. Well, on and on it goes. But yeah, if God existed, would God's existence not have to be necessary? So stop saying, if God exists. <laughs> oh boy. Uh, I'll wait a minute if you want to go get some aspirin after that. Um, but as you say, if God is that great, why is it even debatable uh, an, another way at the same thing. Uh, Richard Carrier wrote this great little essay once about uh, why he doesn't believe there's a God. And he says, look, given what anybody says about God, there's certain implicit claims about how the world would work with justice and so on. There's no real reason to think that's true. Uh, if you imagine, it's like the parable of the garden. Uh, that I forget, uh, Anthony Flew and others have used it. So these guys uh, come upon, uh, a, they're, they're pressing on through the jungle, a couple of hunters or something, and they suddenly find a clearing with flowers planted. And uh, one of them says, wow, I didn't think people lived this far into the jungle, but this is obviously the work of some gardener. And the other guy says, I wouldn't be so sure. I mean, it, it just happens. There's a clearing of, of trees here, uh, but, you know, seeds have blown in the wind and found a purchase here. And so various flowers have, uh, have sprouted. Uh, that doesn't mean somebody planted them. And he says, I, I can't believe that. The first guy says, it's, it's got to be a gardener. What say we camp out here? Uh, because the gardener must tend his garden. He'll be back sooner or later. And I'd, I'd like to meet him. <laughs> okay. And so they camp out there, but they, uh, they don't see any sign of a gardener day after day. And uh, and uh, he says, look, are you ready to give up now and admit there's no gardener? This is all fortuitous. And he says, well, uh, no, uh, maybe the gardener um, comes while we're asleep, but that can't be because they've taken shifts so that somebody is always watching. Uh, oh, yeah, right. That's true. Uh well, maybe this gardener is invisible and makes no sound, and so on and so on. He begins to qualify it more and more. And the skeptic says, look, look what you're doing here. The way you're qualifying this, a gardener who's invisible, intangible, etc., who seems to have no effect, how's that different than there not even being a gardener? Uh, oh, yeah, I see what you mean. Uh, and uh, so 
would it be as equivocal as it is if there were this being? I don't know. What's he doing? Is he just asleep like Bale? Anyway, um, back uh, to the question. I'm sorry. Uh, what really set off my road to disbelief was when I was about 10. I was staying at my grandparents in the night in the very old, creaky house. My sister, uh, yeah, okay, my sister and I believed we saw a ghost. My grandparents told my mother about my active imagination, and she scolded me for acting so childishly. It then clicked in me. If I had seen a small mouse and told them, I would have set the whole house into action. But a human apparition? A trespassing consciousness of the dead with possible malevolent intentions? Well, belief in ghosts clearly uh, wasn't a live option in my religious family's eyes. It was as foolish as seeing fairies or Santa's elves, things by that time I no longer believed in. At this junction, I became a conductor on a long, logical train. Um, I removed the ghosts at that stop, but over time I started kicking off demons, the saints, and then the angels uh, for not having tickets or three-point proofs of their identity or existence. Soon the Trinity itself not having... Uh, soon the Trinity itself, the Holy Ghost. He's just another ghost. Beat it! Jesus, even the catechism teacher, can't explain the Trinity. Your death was supposed to be a payment for something, but uh, the transaction doesn't make sense, nor does it pay for this train ride. So, Mr. Christ, you need to get off at the next stop. However, when standing in front of God the Father, I couldn't wrestle him by the collar and throw him out the window like Indiana Jones for not having a ticket. He was a VIP. By the time I was confirmed, I privately identified as a deist. It seemed to be the most logical of conclusions. Every culture on earth believed in a god of some sort. Believing in a distant one that didn't intercede, stopping the sun or raising the dead or being offended by my skipping certain rituals or prayers seemed logical. Deism made me a part of the tradition of great minds. You can keep your old-time religion. I have the faith of the founding fathers uh, and great scientists, people who actually made miracles happen. I didn't have the courage to tell my family that I didn't believe. I resented the fact that most of them didn't truly believe either. Even the pious treated the church more like a social club, more gossip than gospel. Most of the time, they were knocking around to find people they knew among the pews instead of looking up to try and see God. Yes, most of them sincerely had faith in Jesus, but belief that the Eucharist was actually the body of Christ— that divorce was never justified, that contraception was bad, or that the Pope was infallible? Well, the Catholic Church was like a football team. We have always rooted for this one, and we have to stick with it even when it's fumbling with truth. 
When I was 16, I experienced very aggressive sleep paralysis with demonic hallucinations. However, instead of this moving me to faith, it moved me away. I learned that this was a well-documented psychological condition. Apparently, these demons have been seen by MRI machines. The best treatments weren't prayers or candles, but adjustments to sleep habits. I realized I had a choice. I could be forever a child, afraid of the dark, or I could do as 1 Corinthians 1.13 says. Uh, I think you mean... 13, 13, uh, and throw away childish things. The urge to keep having faith in a distant God I didn't even pray to anymore uh, went away. By then it was Bush's second term, and because of what was going on in the culture at, at the time, I didn't have to look hard to find the writings of Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins on atheism. Hallelujah, I was saved from the clutches of superstition. I heard about your program several years ago from an Ayn Rand podcast. I've not listened religiously, but in the last couple of years, uh, with everything becoming about the White House, I appreciate the calm civility of your show and how you always try to present a fair case for arguments that you disagree with, rather than jousting with straw men and then running a victory lap afterward, which is what so much of media has become, both on the left and on the right these days. Now to my questions. Now that, that, I know you're thinking that was pretty darn long and didn't even contain a question, but it did contain issues, and I couldn't help mouthing off about them. Okay, here's the questions. Number one, I can't remember which episode it was when you mentioned that it is established Islamic doctrine in the Quran that Allah has a human male body with complete male anatomy. From what I understand, the Mormons also hold this view, right, and arguably take it further than Muslims in that they believe that God uses all of his male body. Uh, the, that reminded me of a course I took in, this, in 17th century philosophy more than a decade ago at Rutgers University with Dr. Martha Bolton, in which she made an astonishing statement that the English philosopher Thomas Hobbes of Leviathan fame was not an atheist, but instead something just as heretical over a century before the hard uh, atheistic and deterministic materialism of the French philosophs exemplified by uh, Denis Diderot and Baron de Holbach in 17th century Stuart England. Uh, uh, oh, no, no, 17th century Unlike the men of the Enlightenment, Hobbes wasn't doubting the Bible. He was citing it. Hobbes was such a complete materialist that he denied the existence of spirit and said that everything in the universe, including God himself, was entirely corporeal, that nowhere in the Bible did it explicitly say that angels and other heavenly beings were not material. Um, of course, there's that 
passage in the Psalms, he maketh his servants a flame of fire. But anyway, uh, Hobbes believed that they might be created out of a divine substance. Um, think Renaissance alchemy or certain views of transubstantiation. In the 1660s, there was a heresy investigation into Hobbes, and I recall Professor Bolton saying that Hobbes was ready to defend himself in court because he believed that his views were entirely supported by Scripture. Luckily, his former pupil, King Charles II, was on the throne, so he pulled strings and the case was buried. Does the scripture support Hobbes? Most Christians believe that when we die, we become ghosts that are given either harps or horns, then sent straight to either heaven or hell. By the way, you ever see that Gary Larson cartoon where it shows uh, the first line uh, of people entering uh, uh, heaven and each is given a harp? But then the bottom half of the cartoon shows the poor wretches uh, lined up going into hell, and a demon has given each one of them an accordion. So maybe that's what happens. Uh, um, yeah, uh, Scripture seems to indicate that when we die, nothing happens till the end of time, when the whole human race since the beginning of time, the buried bodies, bone fragments or ashes and the wind are fully restored slash resurrected by God as full material bodies that will then be sorted and judged. The wicked being thrown into a very real and physical, fiery, material hell beneath the earth, while the elect will enjoy a newly created Eden on the present earth, ruled by Christ the King. Heaven and hell and the Bible don't seem to be worlds out of space and time, or the more modern notion that heaven and hell are states of being or mere abstract concepts. They are material, in the flesh, like Christ is supposed to be. I'm starting to think that Hobbes would have found a lot of scriptural support for his views, or was he just as wrong about this as he was about squaring the circle? Let's say it's a geek. I uh, think there's a, a, I think on the the prima facie reading of it, one would have to assume that God is material. Uh, just like the ancient Greeks, even the philosopher uh, Epicurus said that the gods must be made of finer stuff, uh, more uh, rarefied matter. But it's more like saying spirit is energy. Uh, and th that's not quite the same thing, right? Uh, but, you know, that's uh, what uh, some say today. Well, what does it say? Well, it says that uh, that Elohim, uh, which I think uh, in Genesis 1 should be gods, created humanity in their own image, male and female, implying that there were their gods and goddesses, just like in uh, the other contemporary religions. Uh, and uh, we hear later on several times that God is seated upon a throne above the heavenly ocean. They believe that the earth was flat and covered by a kind of an astrodome, um, a closed um, uh, vault, 
and that below the the earth disk was the tahom, the ocean depth, and above it was a universal ocean in space, we might say, and that when it rains, it comes through the windows in the dome from that uh, heavenly ocean, and that above that, there is the throne of God. He's enthroned above the the, the waves and so on. Uh, so um, that certainly seems to be a mapping out of physical realms. Uh, he conquered a dragon, several of them, Leviathan, Rahab, Tiamat, uh, and so forth. Uh, that uh, would seem to imply physical combat, just like in the uh, Babylonian and Sumerian and Canaanite myths. And uh, the whole idea that Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and is seated on his own throne next to that of God. Now, you can start trying to abstract that, but I don't know what you would end up with. Uh, what, what does it mean? Like, uh, if, like in Ephesians, it says that, that Christ ascended on high to fill all things, implying that he's like the heavenly Adam in the Jewish Kabbalah, who is a spirit being, yet uh, of a physical material of some type, some kind of solid light. Uh, and uh, when you say that, who knows what, what is in, in the person's mind. But the only place I can think of in the Bible where it does seem to contravene that is in Jesus' dialogue with a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, where uh, she says, well, uh, Mr. Know-it-all, uh, where should we worship? We Samaritans say right here on Mount Gerizim, but I know you Jews worship in Jerusalem, which is right. And Jesus says, lady, the time is coming. In fact, it's here when uh, it won't matter where you worship because God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Well, uh, does that mean that God is an omnipresent metaphysical mist of some kind? I don't mean that as facetious. I'm just trying to come up with a decent metaphor. Uh, and I, I guess maybe it does. And if so, that represents a more recent uh, stage of, of conceptual theological evolution. But on the whole, yeah. Uh, the uh, it does seem like it. Uh, pic the Bible pictures angels. Oh, oh, how about demons? Now they appear to be non-corporeal because they're desperately searching around for a flop house for the night made of flesh. Uh, some some poor uh, vulnerable person they can inhabit, and that that kind of implies they are. Um, are non-corporeal, and yet one of the major views about what demons were uh, made them the offspring of the fallen sons of God who were corporeal enough to impregnate mortal women. So <laughs> you got me. Oh, boy. It's not that easy to say, but Hobbes could certainly make a good case. 
Yeah. Okay, second question. In Matthew 12, 31, it says, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be, be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Matthew has combined Mark's version of that saying with Q's. Um, okay, uh, in my Catholic uh, confraternity of Christian doctrine class, I heard over and over again about how the Trinity was the greatest mystery of faith. Um, is there a song? Oh, sweet mystery of faith at last I've... No, that's uh, love, yeah. Okay, uh, see here. But what I thought then was that an even larger mystery was the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to say three entities are the same, but I'm not sure if it's even clear that the Holy Spirit is actually its own individual being. I wonder if this line from Matthew was explicitly put in there because others like me questioned if the Holy Spirit was worthy of a spot on the Trinity. There are several examples in Scripture in which Christ speaks or bargains with God, but I don't recall any back and forth between the Holy Spirit and God the Father. For a divine being that gave the gift of speaking in tongues, it's quite silent. In art, the Spirit is portrayed as a fiery dove, but in the Gospels, it seems merely to be an extension of God's power that enters people rather than a separate being in its own right. Uh, I think you're exactly correct there. If anything in the if anything in the Gospels, it seems to act like the Force in Star Wars. Um. A more charitable, charitable idea might be that the Holy Spirit is God's divine grace that attaches to us and connects us with him. If the Spirit, though, is just our connection to God, wouldn't that just make it simply a tool or servant of God, not an equal partner? Also, if we become connected to God through the Holy Spirit— wouldn't that mean we are, we are thus a part of God, uh, possibly crowding out the Trinity? Sounds pantheist to me. Uh, so what exactly is the Spirit, and why would his or its rejection be a greater mortal sin um, than that of God the Father or the Son? I have a suspicion that this passage from Matthew was shoehorned in by later Trinitarians who didn't feel like writing a whole new gospel giving a backstory to this silent character. What saith the geek? Okay, Tolan. Uh, let's see, here's my handy-dandy answer to this. This is a, uh, a case of uh, misinterpretation by early Christians. I mentioned how the, the passage you quoted from Matthew is Matthew's combination of similar passages in Mark and Q. Uh, he took, and this is not the only time he did that. Uh, and um, uh, let's see, in Mark, 
you have the all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, whatever blasphemies they utter. But the blasphemy against the spirit, uh-uh, no way, you're, you're cooked. Uh, but in Matthew, it says that all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven. Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, boy, what, what is it again? Uh, that... Um, any, any blasphemy against the Father or the Son of Man will be forgiven, but not blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, it seems to me very clear that other smarter people than me uh, think differently, but you got to call them as you see them. It, it just seems inevitable to me to, to realize that the Q version is earlier and that the Son of Man just means human beings. And that's what it says, uh, right? Uh, sins will be forgiven the sons of men. Uh, it doesn't say a blasphemy against the son of man, but it does say that in Mark. Well, the Q version um, was just like um, in Matthew, where he takes Mark's story of the paralytic whose stretcher is lowered through the thatched roof. And... Uh, Jesus says, uh, son, your sins are forgiven you. And they say, what? How dare he presume to forgive sins? That's uh, God's prerogative. And Jesus overhears them or has telepathy or something and uh, says, um, uh, uh, that uh, he says, which, which would you say is easier to tell the guy his sins are forgiven or to make him get up and walk. And without waiting for an answer, because it's sort of a rhetorical question, he says, watch this. And he says to the, the uh, he speaks a second time to the paralytic and says, why don't you get up, carry this stretcher and walk home with it? Well, he does. Uh, and uh, the uh, critics of Jesus are kind of uh, stumped. They're, they're speechless. But Matthew comments, uh, the crowd was amazed and rejoiced that God had given such authority to men. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Hey, take up your your uh, your mattress and walk and then then Matthew says they rejoiced uh, because God had given such authority to men right uh, that's uh, that's not the way the end reads in Mark but Matthew I think correctly interprets uh, the son of man having authority on earth to forgive sins means that that it isn't just God that human beings can be, certified by God to convey absolution like Catholic priests do today. That's the issue. Who but God can forgive sins? Well, he's given authority to men also. There's a passage in the Dead Sea Scrolls in a fragmentary text called the, um, the Prayer of Nabonidus, uh, where uh, Nabonidus is... Uh, 
he he's actually it's confused with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was uh, struck insane and was out uh, like a beast of the field uh, grazing on grass for some years, I guess. And uh, then Daniel cures him. Well, in the prayer of Nabonidus, he says, ah, yeah, I was grazing uh, like a like a cow until the man Daniel forgave my sins. Uh, that's another way of saying he healed me, right? So healing and forgiveness of sins were coupled together because it was assumed that if you had some affliction, it was God's punishment for some sin you'd committed, like some of Job's uh, nuisance uh, friends suggested. Come on, Job, you must have done something wrong. I tell you, I didn't. Well, same thing here. This guy had, but... Um, Jesus was able to convey God's forgiveness. That's the point. So son of man, uh, in one part of the story, the son of man has authority to forgive sins on earth. Uh, that means that human beings can pronounce forgiveness on earth as God does in heaven, right? That's why on earth is in it. You're supposed to take the other uh, as, as uh, implied. Or... When Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, what does he say right before that? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's not like God said, oh, I got this great idea. I'll invent the Sabbath day. But gee, I've got to have people to observe the Sabbath. So I guess I'll make people and tell them to not to work on the Sabbath. That's ridiculous, right? And that's what Jesus is saying. The Sabbath is made for the benefit of mankind. That's and then he says, thus the uh, the Son of Man, human beings, Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, they can make the rules governing what is work and what is not, etc. So likewise, the point in Q that uh, uh, is that uh, that um, you can blaspheme other human beings, and that's bad, but you can be forgiven for that. Now, what would blasphemy mean in a connection like that? Well, it used to just mean bad-mouthing, slandering somebody, uh, telling lies about them, uh, that they were part of a great uh, conspiracy with Russia to influence the elections or some nonsense. Uh, and uh, that's blaspheming the person you're libeling. Right? Uh, and okay, you can be forgiven for that, as serious it is, but you blaspheme God, or as the Old Testament also says, speak against God. Uh, I'm sorry, that's it. God's not in a forgiving mood when it comes to that. That's a sin unto death. Uh, it's just like, um, oh, um, Whoa, the uh, like in Job, right? All these terrible catastrophes are befalling poor old Job, and his wife is uh, a, a nagging henpecker and says she's tired of his belly aching and says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? 
In other words, well, that ought to do it. If if you curse God, he's going to send a lightning bolt uh, to get you. At least your suffering will be over. And he says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we not receive uh, adversity when God sends it? I mean, we're happy enough to receive blessings. It's really up to him. We, we better learn to like it fascinating book, the great masterpiece of the Bible, the book of Job. And that's saying something. Well, yeah, right. Uh, it's uh, it's like if you curse God or a ruler in uh, the Old Testament law, you could be killed for it. So blasphemy against the uh, against God is unforgivable. Why does it say the Holy Spirit? Well, you see, this is the opposite end of the spectrum from cursing God or saying uh, this halibut is good enough for Jehovah, right? You're treating the name of God frivolously and insultingly. Uh, So uh, to uh, deal with that question with kid gloves, we're going to refer to Jehovah in a safe way, uh, a circumlocution, talking around it. You know, when Jesus is on trial, uh, are you the Christ, the Son of of the blessed? And he answers, uh, I am, and uh, before long you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. Well, both the high priest and Jesus mean God, but they're using a pious circumlocution. Uh, The same way uh, many Jews will say Hashem, the name, when they mean God. Let's not take a chance of misspeaking the name of God. Uh, so it's like the mirror image of blasphemy, this uh, this super pious avoidance of the use of the name. So I think that makes perfect sense and virtually has to be uh, the proper meaning of it. The son of man uh, you, speaking, the, the Q version says, sins will be forgiven. The sons of men, the Mark version is, uh, all sins will be forgiven except including you know blasphemy against men but not God well uh, I'm getting kind of pooped here so uh, we'll take up another Trinitarian question next time which hopefully will be a little quicker than it was this time on the next exciting episode of the Bible Geek um, and uh, my Patreon is going and I welcome your donations but even if you don't feel like you want to. I appreciate your interest in uh, the Bible Geek and the Human Bible. So, um, sure enough, appreciate your being with me this time. I'll see you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.